This is the Sales Gravy Podcast. I'm Jeff Blunt, best-selling author of People Buy You, and I'm here to help you knock down more doors, close bigger deals, and rock your commission check. Welcome to another episode of Sales Gravy, and I'm so happy this week because we've got a great guest, Brandon Bruce from Sears Insight. But before we get started, I want you to do me a favor, and I want you to go to salesgravy.com, and I want you to check out all the resources that we have there. Sales Gravy is the destination sales training resource for sales professionals and sales leaders from across the globe. You can read articles from some of the top sales experts in the world. You can post a job if you're looking for salespeople. You can look for jobs if you're looking for a new career. And you can take a course on Sales Gravy University. And you can go to Sales Gravy University right now. Just click on the university icon in the top bar. And you can take a free course with no credit card required. So do yourself a favor. Take a moment and go check out salesgravy.com today. And one more thing. If you like the podcast, if you enjoy the episodes, please, please, please do me a favor. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get the podcast and write a five-star review. It lets us know that you're listening and it helps other listeners find the podcast. And now, here's my interview with Brandon Bruce from Sirius Insight on why you can't build a relationship inside a CRM. Hi, this is Jeb Blunt, CEO of Sales Gravy and the author of the brand new book, Sales EQ, behind me. And I'm with Brandon Bruce, the COO and co-founder of Cirrus Insight, one of my favorite sales apps. Brandon, thank you and welcome to the Sales Master Series. Yeah, it's great to be here. And in case things get really exciting, we're under a tornado warning here in Knoxville. So if all of a sudden the uh, live stream starts spinning, you'll know what happened. But uh, we should be good to go. Hopefully we'll see Dorothy and the Wicked Witch going by you and we'll, we'll be good there. I mean, honestly, if that happened, this would probably be like the biggest, one of the biggest live streams that's ever happened, right? On Google Hangouts on air. But uh, we would go, yeah. we, we would go viral. Salesgravy.com and SeriousInsight.com would blow up and it would be, it would be the best marketing event we've ever had. Better than maybe, the Oscars. Maybe we should stage it. Yeah, I don't know. Oscars were pretty dramatic, but yeah, we do what we could. <laughs> yeah, very good. So I, I, the question I have for you first is, Serious Insight, you're the co-founder of the company. What was the, what was the idea behind that? How did you guys begin the company? And, and I guess this is a long question, but how have you iterated and what's the next frontier for Cirrus? And I guess maybe you, you might want to give our, our, our viewers and listeners on the podcast an idea of exactly what Serious Insight is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to start to start there, Cirrus Insight is an application that lets you update Salesforce right from inside your inbox, inside of Gmail, and inside of Outlook. And so the origin of the company uh, really stems from there. We, Ryan Huff, my co-founder, and I were really feeling the pain of having to jump between Gmail and Salesforce all day. So you know, for a for a high velocity salesperson, they might be doing two, three hundred emails a day. You probably do over a thousand. Um, but jumping between Gmail and Salesforce, you know, you get an email from a customer, then you got to go look up the customer and update the customer somewhere else uh, was painful for us. And so credit to my co-founder, Ryan, he started building uh, the application that we launched five years ago. There were actually a lot of people online asking for a solution between the two. So we hoped that if we built it right, we would find a market for it. And uh, thankfully, when we launched the app, it started, it started selling on day one. Uh, so we were able to start, you know, iterating and, and growing the company. You know, the big vote of confidence was 
before we thought we'd launched the website, we'd launched the website, right? Because we didn't know exactly what we were doing with respect to making the website live or not. And one of our early pilot users found it and put through an order. And so plus one was the order form worked. So we had wired it up properly. And plus two was when we contacted the person and said, look, we're not even launched yet. We're not receiving orders. They said, hey, when you do receive orders, I'll be your first customer. Like the app is saving me a lot of time. It's really valuable uh, to be able to spend time in the inbox with my customers, update the CRM in the background. So we thought, well, that's a good sign. We should launch. And so we did a couple of weeks later. I like it. That's very good. <laughs> that was a great story. Now you're in Knoxville, Tennessee, one of my very favorite cities in the entire world, even though the Vols are there, but I do have a, um, I do have an orange book cover. So I guess I, yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> my, um, my going against my Georgia roots, but how did you end up with a tech company in Knoxville where, you know, the, in, instead of in the Bay area? Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of people expect that we're probably in the Bay Area or possibly in New York City or Austin or some of the other hotbeds of technology in Atlanta. Uh, but Ryan and I met at UC Santa Barbara back a long, you know, a lifetime ago when we were undergrads and kind of worked on a bunch of projects. This was, you know, mid to late 90s. So building websites, building some little apps for folks. But we really had a chance to sink our teeth into a full-fledged startup with Sears Insight about five years ago. So in the meantime, I had moved to Washington, D.C., and then I had moved down uh, to Maryville, Tennessee, with my wife, Tricia, who's a professor of sociology. And so when Ryan and I got to start, it was just, let's just start, right? He was coding from Irvine, California. I was doing sales marketing operations from here in Knoxville. And uh, then we had a chance to start scaling up the company and, and hiring people on the team. So we just did it from where we are. So Ryan runs the dev team out in Irvine, and I run the sales operation. Uh, here in Knoxville. And honestly, we're really lucky to be here. I mean, uh, all the companies that are located outside of the major metro areas, you know, there's some challenges there, right? You're not around all the other companies and having the happy hours and the mixers and the conferences and stuff. But the big benefit is there's untapped talent pools all over the country. And so we're very lucky to be next to Maryville College, be next to the University of Tennessee. Oak Ridge National Laboratory has one of the highest densities of PhDs in the country. And the cost of doing business is much lower when you get outside of the big city. So we've been able to scale up, I think, the company a little bit earlier and a little bit faster than we would have in one of the major markets. You know, I'm in a small town, too. I'm outside of Augusta, Georgia. And what I found by being here is that the people that work for us, especially the salespeople, because we have a, a great place to work and we're able to pay more than the surrounding businesses, because we're, you know, and to some extent, we're a tech company as well, because we do online training you know, through our, our mobile platform. And we just get a lot more loyalty and our people stick around for a lot longer. And like you said, the cost of business is lower and the small town feel. I mean, Knoxville is a growing city, but it has a really small town feel, but it's also, you know, sort of a hip place to hang out. And when you hang out downtown, it's got to be you know relatively easy for you to recruit people because all the students are there. Agreed. Well, and it's always easy to jump on a plane, right? So we go, we go, we go to the big city, whether it's San Francisco, New York, all the other big tech centers, Boston, Chicago, et cetera, several times a year. And we're always doing conferences. And so those are great opportunities to meet up with our customers in person, right? And forge the relationships. And then we have some employees that work from some of those cities, but yeah, being based here, you know, I think one of the big advantages, and, and you would see the same thing in Augusta, but in Knoxville, we've built enough relationships with the local business community. We really feel like the community is pulling for us. And so when someone's looking for an opportunity, then they'll refer, hey, go go talk to the folks at Sears Insight, right? They're, they're building cool stuff. And so 
it's it's easy, maybe even easier to build that network of support here locally. And you feel like the whole city and the whole region is kind of behind you and what you're trying to do, which is really cool. Feeling. It, is, it is. It is a cool feeling. And and I again, Knoxville is just a it's a fantastic got a couple of clients up there and it's a great city. Let's let's move to sales. I, in, in my book, Fanatical Prospecting. I talked about the CRM being yeah. the most powerful tool in the salesperson's toolbox. I poke salespeople all the time. You know, are you treating your CRM like a gold mine? Are you treating it like a trash can? Right. And sadly, what I find for a lot of salespeople is that they think that they're doing CRM stuff for the man. Right. The boss is looking over my shoulder. People are getting reports. And what I try to help them understand is that the CRM is a a memory bank that is able to to remember things for you when you can't and it makes it effortless and if you manage and build your database the right way then you you build this this gold mine that when you need a deal you can simply type a few things in do a search and you can find an opportunity a, a prospect that's in the buying window or, or you know etc and I'm sure that you're having similar conversations with the VPs of sales and the directors of sales that you are dealing with, probably CEOs. And I'm wondering from their point of view, what is their pain? What are they seeing um, in, in terms of their CRM and, and, and how it's fitting into the salesperson's world and driving pipeline? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And this conversation that we have you know, pretty much daily, right? So at, that, at, the, at the C and VP levels, Often the conversation revolves around, hey, we're trying to make better decisions. We bought Salesforce as, or any CRM for that matter, as a management reporting tool. But to report and have it be useful, you got to have a lot of good data, right? Namely, activity data, opportunity data, et cetera. And so any database uh, is a classic garbage in, garbage out uh, platform, right? To, 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 to butcher your analogy of, you know, it's either a gold mine or a trash can. You're either putting a lot of great data in and you're getting value out of it, or you're likely not putting any data in, in which case it's just a big empty shell. So the challenge that a lot of the managers and executives are facing is, hey, we made the investment and we tried to align some process with it and some workflow, but gosh, we just can't get people to use it. Meanwhile, if you go and sit with the sales folks that are intended to use the platform, They'll say, I'm not seeing the value, right? Like the managers are bringing down my neck to update it, but I'm giving them a choice. I either go out and make sales or I can update the database. Which one would you like me to do? Well, it's an easy decision to make, right? The business shuts down if you don't make sales. If the database is empty, you don't learn a lot, but at least the business, at least the lights are still on. And so what we've tried to do is basically bridge that and say, look, good data needs to get into the CRM. Uh, but you got to meet the salespeople where they are. And so in a lot of ways, I view CRM as kind of a misnomer. You know, a, a CRM is actually not where relationships themselves are managed with your customers. You know, no one's ever had a great relationship in a database, right? The relationship happens on the phone, in-person meetings, let's go grab coffee, uh, and by email. And so much of a, so many of us work 80, 90% of our day in the inbox and scheduling meetings in the calendar. So, so what we tried to do, at least as an application, as a company, is say, great, let's meet the salespeople where they are in the inbox, in their calendar, help them schedule more meetings, help them track the emails. And in the meantime, let's update Salesforce for them so they don't have to, because we know it's hard and we know there's only 24 hours a day. So in the background, we can help them save all the email activity, save the event activity, 
And we'll also make it really easy for them to update opportunities and assign tasks and escalate cases right from the side of Gmail or right from the side of Outlook. So it's designed to satisfy the managers. And in fact, a lot of them get really excited, like, wow, there's 10 times more data flowing in the Salesforce. So I can slice and dice and all these great reports. And we're learning that you know, three meetings is the magic number for our company. One meeting, not enough. We never close those deals. 10 meetings, prospective customers just looking for a friend, right? They're never going to buy, but three is like a magic number. Okay, cool. Or maybe, hey, 20 emails back and forth is like a good optimal number for us. And so it's great for them to get those realizations. Meanwhile, you go talk to the salespeople and they're like, this application is great. I haven't logged into Salesforce for two months, right? And so it's a different perspective. But, but what's interesting is the salesperson hasn't, quote, logged in but we've kept them logged in and they've been updating Salesforce, but it becomes part of their workflow. And so it takes the sting out of, well, now I got to leave what I'm doing over here and go over and make updates. And it's kind of the classic from the beginning, we've kind of referred to as the Friday fire drill. You work hard all week, you do sales. And then Friday comes is, Oh, I better enter in all my activities and remember what I did so that I get credit right from the manager. And we've seen examples of companies, and this is this is pretty severe in, in my view, but we've talked with sales reps that said, hey, if I close an opportunity and hand the check over, if there's not evidence of the opportunity in Salesforce, they don't even get commission for it, right? And so there's some organizations that's like, hey, if it didn't happen in Salesforce, then it didn't exist. And so, you know, it's one way to do it. It's a little bit of the stick method where the carrot is is more like, hey, if you update all this stuff, then we can learn better. Uh, larger pie for everybody we're going to close more deals faster and uh that's the more attractive way of pushing the adoption out so so yeah yeah i mean you're exactly right i was in a, a meeting recently with uh with a sales director who was you know admonishing the salespeople for not getting stuff into salesforce and and of course he used the words hey if it's not in this in salesforce it didn't happen and one of the sales reps who was a pretty good sales rep who can get away with this because he sold enough stuff, you know, pulls a signed contract out of his uh, bag and says, well, I guess this signed contract's a mirage too, you know, and everybody laughed and, uh, but he, you know, he's making his point that it didn't happen. And that's one of the things about serious insight that we like so much is that it's in line, right? It's, it's part of what's happening, not something separate from it. And, you know, I'm, and I'm all about efficiency and effectiveness during the day. I think that, you know, during the golden hours, the time when you can, actually build a relationship with a client that if you're not standing in front of someone either you know in person on the phone or via email but if you're not interacting with clients during that period of time you're not doing your job. So right. what you've done with Cirrus is you've, you've created a way for people to handle that. And I think what's smart about Cirrus Insight is that you realize that like most of the activity that's happening is on email. Yeah, there are some things like a brand new you know opportunity. I might need to go log in or put some information in. Sometimes I need to, you know, we, the biggest issue we have is getting people to update their pipeline so we can run an opportunity report. Some of that stuff you, you're going to have to do, but I, you know, I think about it, I, and I was thinking about it the other day. Go, how much stuff, right? That that happens um, where things aren't getting entered into this into Salesforce, and it's all it's all here. And I'm a you know I'm an Outlook fan, so that's what we use. Yeah. So you, it solved a big problem. Um, let's 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 look at your Salesforce, your sales team. I talked to a couple of your guys the other day, go, and they were, I mean, smart guys. I gave them some tips. I know that they're 
hopefully their heads weren't spinning or they didn't come back and say that I was a moron. Nah, hopefully <laughs> the more spinning, the better, right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, but as, you know, as a, as a leader of salespeople, um, what are some of the challenges that you're facing with your own sales team? And we won't show them this video if it's, if it's, you know, some, some things you want to talk about, but what are some things that you're facing just from a leader standpoint um, in getting them to a keep the pipeline full and then to advance deals to the pipeline? Yeah, it's a great question for us. A lot of it boils down to the, the velocity of the pipeline. And so, uh, you know, we have some customers that will work, you know, a half dozen deals a year and they're all multi-million dollar deals. Right. And so that that's it. And they just need to track those uh, at a granular level. Right. Someone sneezes at their customer like they're they're on site. Right. Um, checking it out. We, by contrast, and we work some pretty good-sized deals now with some large companies that, that use Salesforce and use Outlook or Gmail, but our bread and butter is high volumes of trial starts coming into Cirrus Insight and, and using the app. So, you know, the one-person, five-person, 10-person, 50-person organizations that are coming in and saying, I want to try this, and then I want to buy it. And some that are, you know, pretty small and tech-savvy, they'll just come and try it, and they'll buy it right away. And they... They don't reach out for anything. They find all the information they need from the website. But it's those folks that start in that kind of middle range. We'll call it, you know, uh, folks that are interested in buying the software, but probably not putting it on a credit card. So it's probably a little bit more than that. So it's a little bit less transactional. And they want to come in and get a bunch of tips and best practices from the sales team. And so the challenge then for us is how do we best manage uh, that funnel of folks coming in? Uh, how do we assign them to the right sales reps on our side? So today, so far, we've done most of it by size. Uh, we don't have a geographic model per se, unless we have a rep that's really in that area that can get on a plane or drive in a car and go visit them in person, in which case we'll assign it to them. Um, otherwise, we do a little bit of ad hoc assignment based on, hey, if they're in Brazil, we have two native uh, you know, uh, speakers of Portuguese. So we'll assign it to one of them, regardless of the size of the deal, because it just makes sense. Same with Japanese. Um, but otherwise, it's all about trying to make sure that we do our round robin in a way that aligns right for the account executives. And then on the sales development side, trying to focus their time and effort in really going after the accounts that, that have the best probability uh, to translate for us. So we look at lots of things, the industries that we do best in, the sizes of companies we do best with. Um, we're, we're definitely big right now into similarities. So you go out and close a deal with a grain feed company. Let's go look for other grain. Let's go look at their competitor list and call and then find out, Hey, is this, is this an industry that is ripe, uh, for the advantage that we can provide through our software and kind of go from there. Cause we've learned a lot then about that type of business and we can, we can then apply it. So there's industries that we found particular strength in manufacturing, pharmaceuticals, increasingly finance. Uh, I think there were a few years there where finance was a little bit reluctant to go into cloud software. And now all of a sudden that's starting, you know, probably a little bit like five years later than everybody else. So that's a big focus for us now. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it's just business choices as much or even more than like sales process, just deciding, you know, 24 hours in a day, where do we focus our time? Where do we point the salespeople and say, this is where you can have your, the most success? Well, I think there's two two 
two lessons in there, actually three lessons in there. One of the way we, we, we built Sales Gravy 10 years ago was exactly what you said. We'd find, we'd get one company that would come in. Sometimes it was a bluebird, but we'd close it. And then we would go find every one of its competitors and we would call them. Because like you said, we would start learning about that particular vertical and we would understand what their common problems were. It made prospecting easier. We weren't having to make things up. The second thing you said is win probability. We focus on the highest probability deals. Yeah. And ultra high performers, and we talk a lot about that in Sales EQ, ultra high performers, that's how they play the game of sales. They don't waste their time. There's only 24 hours. They're wasting them on the highest probability opportunities. The third thing that you said there that I think is critical, especially for sales leaders, is what you're doing. As you describe that, you're like the coach. You're like the you can see the whole field and you're spending your time getting your people in position to win. So the salespeople are focused on the immediate, right? Getting something closed, moving it forward, creating velocity in the pipeline. And you're the person, and I'm sure your other leaders are, the, are, are saying, let's focus here, let's focus there, let's focus there. You're seeing those patterns, which goes back to what you were saying earlier with getting the right data into the CRM, then you can start crunching the data as a leader and start making smart decisions about how your salespeople spend their time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one of the interesting things, and this is, and we, we were actually in the process of writing up a book about it too, which will be out shortly, but what we noticed about looking at some of our data and it was only by having the data that we could even crunch it. Right. We started looking at the data and when I noticed was interesting and it changed the way that I did some of the coaching and some of the management is that we would see upon initial engagement with a prospect who is interested, there was a flurry of activity. There's the back and forth, right? Hey, how does this feature work? I want to see a demo and there'd be a meeting and then there'd be a bunch of other emails back and forth. Then they'd go into the trial period and there'd be basically a steady but reduced level of back and forth, right? The occasional question over the course of a couple of weeks. Then when it got into the point of like, hey, this looks good, we want to buy this, another big flurry. Several meetings, bunch of emails back and forth, red lines in the contract, so forth. And then, the, and then there's the, that last, maybe there's a support issue or two needs to get resolved before they're ready to move forward. Go through security, go through legal, go through procurement. Then you send that clean version of contract. And then there was no activity. Contract's not signed yet. No one's talking to anybody. They're not replying to salespeople. Salesperson stops reaching out. So basically, uh, looks like a flat line right so like the, the sale had like a heartbeat and all of a sudden to a manager just going in and looking at it it looks dead and that's kind of scary because it's like hey wasn't that deal you're working like where is it? i thought that was going to come in like the end of this month or i thought it was on the two-week process but by looking at the patterns in the data what we realized is that is that there was basically a quiet period and all of us I, when i stepped back and looked at it i said well of course i do the same thing when i'm buying something I get all the information, I get all teed up and ready to go. And then you sit and you think about it a little bit. Do I really wanna buy this? Uh, is it the right price? Is it the right time? Should I postpone this a little bit? Is, is everyone on the team ready for this? So you might sit on it for a week, maybe two weeks. And then, okay, now we're ready. And then you sign it, right? Or you get your budget lined up. Maybe you need to find budget from somewhere. And so knowing that, I stopped being so quick to go to the sales. Hey, I thought this was gonna close, right? And you're putting pressure on your own team. It's like, no, no, they did their work. Their work is basically done. Their work now is to watch it. They need to monitor. Because if it doesn't come back in the next week or 10 days, then yeah, they better be Johnny on the spot and find out what the heck's going on in the deal. But we learned to just settle back and kind of relax through that quiet period, knowing that that's just how it works. And then the customer would come back and sign it. And so, you know, it's, it's small things like that that turn out to be big things, at least, at least for me. I wasn't hassling the team as much. Just like, geez, you know, I just, just finished sending out the contract. What do you think it's going to be signed, you know, right away? Sometimes it is, and we love those deals. 
but sometimes it takes a little while for the customer to get over the hump. And uh, it's having the data in the system that allowed us to have that realization, which was useful. That's beautiful. I love that. I love it. I love it. I love it. That's uh, it's you know, and that's why one of the things that I'm I'm I guess I'm a, I'm, a, I'm passionate about is. There is no one size fits all in sales. It, sales is situational. The product, the service, the people, the type of customers, every company, every business has got to look at those particular patterns. And when you go back and describe pipeline velocity, if if you're not careful, you miss those you miss those spaces where patience is the right thing um, versus pushing and and understanding when you do need to push and when you do need to to hold back. That's obviously part of having some emotional intelligence, but it's also part of understanding the patterns in your own sales cycle so that you can teach your salespeople what to do. And as a leader, you don't become the micromanager that's going, when's it going to close? When's it going to close? What's it going to close? Right. And I know I've been on that road sometimes and I have, I know when salespeople are looking at me going back off, dude. So, yeah. Yeah, so I get that. Um, I know you got to go because you got a meeting coming up. And I want to ask you a question that I ask most people that come on uh, my show and that I interview. If I got a hundred newly graduated college students who came out of business school and they were sitting in front of you and you were going to give them advice based on everything that you've learned so far. And it's incredible how much you've accomplished and, and how successful you are. What would you tell them? What advice would you give them on what they need to do next in their career to achieve a level of success that is commensurate with their talent? Yeah, I mean, and, I'll, and I actually did did a class yesterday at University of Tennessee, and, and they were undergrads uh, in the business marketing major. But but a couple pieces that I shared with them, which hopefully was useful. Um, one is if they want to be entrepreneurs, which I highly recommended because it's a ton of fun. I don't, I don't think there's more fun to do in a career than start something, right? And I have relatives have done it, friends have done it, and I'm glad that I'm doing it because I'm having more fun than in any career I can imagine. But what I recommended to them was it's a little bit opposite than some of the advice that you get when you think about uh, minimum viable product, which is definitely the path that, that we follow to work very well for us. But I even like to back it up a little bit further and say, go out and try to sell before you even embark on building the thing that you think that you want to build, uh, try to sell it first, right? Go to talk with people, figure out what they really want. You know, what are they really willing to pay for that provides value? And if possible, try to go the distance and even close those sales or put a contingency. Okay, you agree and you're signing that you will pay as soon as it's done. And I think that's a great way to get started on the path of entrepreneurship for those students in that group of 100 that are interested in taking that path. Uh, for others that are looking to jump in, right, get a first job out of school, you know, I always recommend, because there are so many college graduates now, and they're great, right, and they're learning a lot in school, but it's how do you differentiate yourself in any market where there's a supply and demand. So, you know, if you're a great coder, you got your pick of any jobs that you want, right, because there's a supply and demand mismatch. If you're strong in business, and you have that business degree, that's great, but there's probably 100 other people that have that same degree, so to differentiate yourself in the market, I always advocate for, you got to go out and build something that you can point to and say, that's mine. And I, I did that. And this is how I did it. And these are the results I got. And as in school, the results in some respects matter a little bit less than the process you took to get there, right? So if someone's coming in to interview and they say, look, I finished school, I started a business, I ran, this is how we tried to do it. It turned out it didn't work. We got crushed by this big competitor or whatever, but I went through this whole process. I'll be like, that's great. And to me, that's a big leg up against the person that just comes in and says, I've got my degree, right? I took some classes and I learned a few things about marketing. 
I like the story that the first person had. It's like, this is how we did marketing. Right? I jumped in the game. I spent a little bit of money or I got some free marketing because we didn't have any money to spend on marketing. Um, that's an interesting story. So I always look for, whether it's resumes or people that come in the office, I'm looking for those stories that uh, they jumped in the ring, they've taken some swings at something, whether it's a school project, uh, an extracurricular. It's often the extracurriculars that make the big difference. It's like, yeah, while I was going to school, I also worked a part-time job or I started a nonprofit or I did an internship with a judge or the government. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be sales or business, but it's that extra stuff that they're doing. That's where, that's where a lot of the real learning happens. Because at least for me, and I went to school for a long time, right? I did my undergrad and my MBA and my law degree. And so uh, there's a lot of years of schooling there. And yet it's the stuff I've learned over the last five years being in business. I don't know if there's another way to learn it. I mean, I learn new stuff every day. And it's mostly by making a bunch of mistakes, right? Like, oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> uh, stop doing that. <laughs> Do the other thing instead. And then every once in a while, we hit on something that works really well. And that's, that's what's helped us build the company. It's those few things that we discovered that's like, oh, that worked so well. We can do that every day. You know, I tell a story about uh, our first salesperson, Daniel. And, uh, and we wanted to see if people were interested in the next version of Serious Insights. So three, four years ago. So we sent out a message to all our existing customers saying, hey, if you want to end prospects, if you want to see the next version, you click here to grab some time on our calendar and we'll show it to you. Two hours later, he had 40 hours worth of meetings. His whole week was booked. And we looked at that and said, that's interesting, right? And then we've been doing it that way ever since. The last four years, we sent out the same messages. It's not always to see a new version, but it's see the next thing in sales, see how to book more meetings, see how to track emails. And if you want, it, if you want to see it, you just grab time with us and we'll show it to you. Um, so that works. And there's some other things. Some people call them hacks, but it's really more than a hack. It's a way of doing business that you just hit on. It works for our business. It doesn't work for everybody. Um, but yeah, for any students getting out there, hack around, get, get in the ring enough to figure out a bunch of stuff that doesn't work and then try to find a few things that do work. And that's the thing that's going to impress, I think, prospective employers is to see that you're a thinking person, that you're in the game and that you're ready to go work hard. Awesome. Brandon, thank you so much. And by the way, if anybody's feeling sorry for Brandon for all the work that he does, I know he works like 24 hours a day. He did his undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara, like the country club. So, um, right. so yeah, I, the, dorm, the dorm was not more than 30 seconds from the beach. So it's yeah. A, yeah, for those looking for a great undergraduate experience, I definitely recommend <laughs> being a gaucho and heading out west. And we, and we know that you, 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 at least you have some discipline because you actually made it out of there and, and went on to, uh, to graduate school. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Brandon. Brandon is the CEO and co founder of Sears Insight, one of my favorite apps. Uh, Sears Insight will help you enter stuff into your CRM so much faster because you don't actually have to do anything other than send an email. You can check out Sears Insight at SearsInsight.com. And if you give it a free trial, Brandon will buy you a free cup of coffee at Starbucks. Brandon, thank you again. You got it. Like we always say, coffee's for closers, right? So That's we'll, right. <laughs> Very good. It.